Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to create relevant, body-centered, and inclusive lessons that give students opportunities to feel optimistic for the future. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Lewis Mayday Travis, a middle school science teacher from Seattle, Washington. I emailed Lewis about an interview after I found his blog, Fishy Teaching, and managed to read every single page on it in an entire evening. I was incredibly inspired, but also, because science was never my strongest subject when I was in high school, I found myself learning things that I probably should have understood about 15 years ago. He agreed to meet me at a branch of the Seattle Public Library in one of their meeting rooms. I began by asking him about his teaching philosophy. For me, the, like my, yeah, my pedagogical approach has a lot to do with um, creating cohesive ways of understanding how the world works, which is another way of talking about science, like thinking about how the natural world works and its phenomena that are centered around things that are relevant to kids' lives and complex phenomena that aren't you can't just explain in a single sentence. So um, I really love the ambitious science teaching model. It came out of the University of Washington. I'm lucky to have a lot of folks in my professional learning community who um, have supported me in growing in the ways that I use that particular model. But um, essentially, it's a, it's a way of getting kids digging into really meaty questions, even at a young age. And beyond that, that are also like relevant to them in uh, what a pedagogical theorist might call a hyper-local context. Ah. Um, I just went to an awesome presentation at the Northwest Teaching for Social Justice Conference that was led by, here, I'm going to get out my notes, uh, Presence O'Neill and Pixie Freeman, who both work at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, led this awesome presentation about place-based empower-aware STEM revision to like take units and in- sort of intersect with a lot of different pedagogical theories that have to do with identity and power. Um, But one of the things that really struck me about the framework that they provided is really thinking about not just how do you make it relevant to kids' lives in general. It's like, how do you you create curriculum that really matters to the kids in the room um, and sort of the community that you're creating just in that single classroom? Um, I'm currently a professional curriculum writer. Like that's how I'm making money as I'm taking a year off from teaching. And it is completely ludicrous to me that people could write curriculum that could then just be plug and play because I think my pedagogical approach is really you need to think about who is in the room and how to meet where those people are at. So then my follow-up question is what does that look like for you where you obviously have pressure from you know the state level to have a unified curriculum Whereas we know that classrooms next door to each other might not even be unified. So how how do you write that curriculum? You know, you do the best you can. (laughs) And um, I think you start by, like with the ambitious science teaching model, you start by thinking about what is the standard that you're trying to meet? Like, so if you're under NGSS or another kind of um, set of content-rich, like three-dimensional standards that you are trying to meet with students... Um, and from there, and, I think and yes, is... the next generation science standards. Okay. So a number of states, including Washington State, currently use them as the sort of guideposts for what kids should be learning in science classes. Thanks for asking. So, you know, you start with a next generation science standard standard or pre- performance 
expectation. And then you think about what are some of the um, phenomena that you could use to get at that that's going to really draw students in. Um, and then you think about what are the specific ways that I can make this even more relevant to my kids in this space. Could you walk me through, like, I know on your blog you have really cool examples of, of units and, and lessons. Could you kind of walk us through the ambitious science teaching lesson of your choice? Sure. Let me try going through this with um, a unit I did last year about the skeletal system. Okay. Okay. So the skeleton is a really cool dynamic biological system. I was teaching human biology and I wanted kids to leave the unit understanding the structure and function of bones and also how bones change over time um, and get a sort of a sense of sort of the, the ways that bones work in the body. So I started by sort of exploring around on the interwebs being like, what are some things about the skeleton that could be relevant here? And um, found this really cool scientist, an anthropologist, I believe, who was working on trying to use bone density to dispel the misconception that prehistoric women in Europe were not strong because up until the point that she was doing this work, people who had been looking at the prehistoric bones of women had, and cis women in this particular case, presumably, um, had only been comparing them to living cisgender men. So she was like, it is completely ridiculous based on what we know about physiology to expect the bones of someone in it with a system that is mostly estrogenic to like have the same kind of structure and the same kind of bone strength and density of someone whose body is mostly androgenic and like on testosterone. And so she went out and she found all of these cis female athletes who did repetitive work the way that prehistoric women in these cultures according to the research they had done, would also do, and found that actually prehistoric women or prehistoric female people are significantly stronger than some of the most elite collegiate athletes, which is, like, super cool, right? And it's like, and so, you know, you start with the students by being like, here is a phenomenon where it's like, the scientist is looking at bones and is able to tell something about how people who died thousands of years ago, like what their lives were like and sort of what that looked like. And so it leads to sort of these deeper discussions and explorations of like, how do bones change? What changes bones? How could you look at a bone and say that bone was in the body of someone who like went through typical female puberty? Um, and it led to a lot of really cool discussions and even some discussions I didn't necessarily anticipate because of the way that students were engaging with it. And one of the things that really made it work with my student population is I had a number of students who were crew athletes who like rode in clubs outside of school. Uh, and the athletes that the particular person was studying were also crew athletes. And I was like, this is super cool. It's like a hyper local connection with particular students in my classroom that we can then have this conversation about sort of what that looks like. So you have this really cool post on your blog where you show a picture that just looks like a bunch of dots. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll definitely try and put a link to in that for the show notes. And I was looking at it, I was like, I don't know what this is. And then you're like, it's actually a Dalmatian walking on a street with leaves. And then I saw the Dalmatian. And you drew the analogy of that's what a science teacher does, is kids are being bombarded with all of these dots, and it's your job to help them figure out 
where the Dalmatian is and to be able to do that on their own. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a bit more. Yeah. So first off, shout out to Gregory Francis, who is the professor in the class who used that as a metaphor for us as we were tackling some really challenging physics topics in his class. In science, and really in the world in general, I would say, um, in an age when everyone is walking around with like a computer in their pocket that is faster and smarter and better at accessing information than anything that existed when I was born. There is so much to learn in terms of content. There's so much uh, to take in. You know, I think that a sort of more traditional perspective on what science education should be is to sort of like think of kids as these empty vessels and you're just filling them with information and filling them with sort of the dots. But the way that I approach science teaching is really thinking about connecting those dots and allowing kids to see the bigger picture so that as more information comes in, there is already a schema set up as sort of a a structure um, or a scaffolding that they are creating about the way that they are reasoning with that information so that when they leave my classroom, which is inevitable, that they are able to integrate that into a larger system of reason that is in alignment with the way that we understand the world works. And that topic of integration, because I know that's something that Practically every teacher that I, I've talked to, we all say, oh man, if only our subject matter could dovetail into other subject matter, how do you see yourself integrating other subject matters in the science classroom or vice versa? That's a great question. You know, that is a, such a challenging prospect, like creating that interdisciplinary collaboration. It's something that I have struggled to do with colleagues for years. And so what I ended up eventually doing is when you are thinking about a particular topic from the perspective of like a, an anchoring phenomenon, like say prehistoric bones and their strength, you then draw in a number of other pieces that are needed to create that explanation that often aren't necessarily just science specific. Um, you know, we had a whole conversation about what sexism looks like in sports, <laughs> which is not necessarily like part of what that science looks like, but it is helping create this integrated picture of what that can look like. And sometimes you're lucky enough to work with people and to have the time and to have the capacity to be like, hey, here's what I'm doing with my students right now. Are there ways for us to connect to what people are doing in other classes? And I think that those moments are really powerful for students. But at the end of the day, I think that the, as much as we can do as teachers to make those connections with students in the moment in our classrooms, like the better off we are. So you do a five-minute body break with your students, which I think is a fantastic idea. And I'm curious how you came to the conclusion that five minutes of that precious, precious knowledge could be lost to this body break <laughs> and how it was received in your classroom. It was, so I think that body breaks are an example of something that was like a really excellent idea and it was so messy. I'm still trying to figure out how to make it work actually extremely smoothly. Like I think that there are some teachers who just like, I'm going to do this wild and amazing idea and it just like works. And I, this is an example of something where like I iterated this over and over again over two years and never quite got it to be the thing that I really wanted. But basically body breaks were, I was like, okay, I want kids to be doing kinesthetic learning. I also want kids to be in their bodies in my classroom. I had a, a boss who compared being in middle school and going to seven classes a day to being in like seven different 
like business meetings over the course of, you know, six or seven hours in which there are different rules in every single meeting, but you have to remember all of them. And like, you know, just like all of those things make it really hard for us to be able to relax and really be in the part of our brain that can learn, right? Like if you are in the fear place, if you are in the fight or flight response, you are not going to be able to take in new information. And the stuff that we do in science class and English class and history class is really complex. So body breaks, I was like, cool. This is going to be my way to be like, here we are, you have a body, we are learning about the body, like, you know, dovetailing all of those things together and just taking five minutes and being like, Phew. and was it sometimes 10 or 15 minutes? Yes. Did those days suck? Yes. <laughs> was it sometimes one or two minutes? Yes. Does that work if kids are in the routine and they can do those transitions smoothly? Absolutely. And so there was sort of a, a wide variety of things that I do with students that allow them to center, whether that's just sitting for a moment in silence, which is so rare, or um, stretching out particular muscle groups and talking about how they work and connect together. We would sometimes do uh, games to model some of the um, body processes that we were learning about. So I used to have a team building game that was all about peristalsis. But basically, like, yeah, creating opportunities for, like, moving in your body, acknowledging that you have a body, which honestly, I think is one of the most radical things we can do as teachers is be like, you know, there are so much policing of bodies that happens in schools where it's like, no, you cannot go to the bathroom. No, you cannot get water. Like, sit down, stand up, whatever. And it's just like, just be here. We're going to, like practice some important skills, but also we're just going to exist for a little bit. So yeah, it's, it's an ongoing experiment. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that kinesthetic learning part is really interesting to me because um, my best friend, she said one of her worst middle school memories was her French teacher making them do jumping jacks as they conjugated verbs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and this teacher obviously thought she was brilliant because she was involving the kinesthetic learning part. And it in fact just traumatized my poor friend whose body was changing. And that idea of doing jumping jacks in front of the class just was horrifying for her. So how can we do kinesthetic learning when we are dealing with students who are perhaps really self-conscious about their bodies, how they move, maybe they move differently. What are some guidelines you might want to give some teachers? Word. So the thing that comes to mind for me first is you don't have to do things that make you feel uncomfortable or unsafe. In my classes, I have a human biology bill of rights where it's just like, here are some fundamental things that you have the right to do. And what I'm about to say is something that most teachers will be like, absolutely, I would never tell my students this is true. I, I say this to them and I hold it in trust and sometimes it leads to some hard conversations. But one of the pieces of the human bio bill of rights is like, I, I take it on faith with my students that if they say to me, hey, like this is something that isn't working for me or I, I need to take a break, that they can do that. And like, you know, based on the structure of your school, you might have to create particular ways for kids to be able to opt out and still be safe. So like, maybe you aren't allowed to let kids like go in the hallway, but you know, finding a place in the room where it's like, you can just like hang here and it's okay. Or just finding ways for kids to normalize opting out. Um, I think it's another way of acknowledging that bodies exist, right? Where it's yeah. just like, as a human biology teacher, we covered a number of topics that could be really hard or triggering for students for any number of reasons, and I don't have to know why. I, I feel like I had a responsibility to tell kids what was coming down the line and to always leave the door open to be like, if there's something that is too much for you, like, please tell me and we'll work with it. I think also you talk a little bit, you, you 
touched on sort of like thinking about like physical accommodations and especially making sure that there's space for all different kinds of bodies in the way that you are holding space. And that is something that's going to be really individual based on your students. So we already talked about one unit or lesson that you've done is, can you share another unit or lesson that you've done that you're really proud of? One unit that I have done, and this is modeled after a unit that I think a number of teachers have helped develop um, in the sort of ambitious science teaching professional learning community, including Christine Zucker-Permomo. The the phenomenon for this particular unit was thinking about um, the immune system, which is a really complex system to teach, um, through the lens of HIV. And so, like, I don't want to get into, like, the nitty-gritty of, like, what the different pieces looked like in terms of how the unit was structured. I think there's um, a lot of resources out there, and if teachers are interested and would like more information, they should feel free to email me. You can put my contact information in the podcast description. But I think that for me, as someone who is connected directly to a number of people who are HIV positive, um, both in the queer community and through friends of mine who have worked in the HIV positive community, it was really really powerful to create conversations um, with students where um, we are actually directly addressing what HIV stigma looks like, what um, the criminalization of HIV looks like, and thinking about the sort of social justice issues underneath it, and to have the conversation over and over and over again with kids about, you know, HIV positive people are people, and being positive is not like a death sentence. It's just a reality that people live with and like regardless of how someone becomes positive like they still deserve to be treated as people you know like just that that basic sort of underpinning like I could feel the ways that those conversations in the room were shifting how kids were really thinking about the world more broadly in a way that's not quite tangible like I can't quite say like ah you know in this moment or like these kids you know measurably whatever but just the kinds of conversations we were having and the kinds of vulnerability that kids were sharing in those spaces were really powerful. And it was a real, it was a gift to me to be able to be in those spaces with kids. There, there are uglier sides of what bigotry can look like. Yeah. And it intersects with science, right? Like the language around HIV and the ways that people have been taught about what HIV and AIDS are and what the lived experience of people is, it intersects with who does science and what science does. And so to be able to unpack that with, you know, 13 and 14 year olds in a way that, as far as I could tell, was safe, even for kids in the room who might be positive themselves or who might have family who are positive, like, that was such a gift. And also they learned about the immune system. So like, you know, there's, there's just, um, I think that that was, yeah, that was really powerful and really cool. And I know because I've downloaded it that you have on your website, a, I guess, a handout about how to have brave conversations with Mm -hmm. colleagues or in your classroom, because I know there might be some teachers listening to that being like, I don't even know how I could even think about uttering the word HIV in my classroom. Your handout is a good place to start at least. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, I put some stuff out there. There is really awesome stuff out there. But the thing that I would say to any teacher who is, you know, feeling interested in working with these things or interested in having some of these hard conversations is, you know, the the best thing you can do is try. I'm going to relate an experience that I had, which is uh, I was feeling very proud of myself in my classroom, uh, really incorporating my social justice in there. And I was using literacy skills and we were looking at an article about rape as a tool of war. And we were having this really amazing conversation. And I was just like, wow, yay, social justice teaching. 
and I was talking to one of my students and she she was very complimentary. She was like, I've learned a lot, Ms. Levin. I realize it's super important, you know, said all those things, if you open my eyes, but could we just have one day where it was a worksheet with questions <laughs> and I didn't have to feel and think so much? <laughs> and so that really made me pause and think about like, yes, I think that the classroom is an amazing place for all of these discussions. But like you talked about, kids are going from class to class to class to class. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we just need to give them a break. And so where do you kind of draw your line? How do you try to not overwhelm students with some of these things? Yeah, it's such an important point. Um, And I think that one thing that I really want to underscore also is, so yes, kids need a break. I mean, they really do. And it's really essential that we talk to the other folks that our students are engaging with to make sure that there isn't a week where they are talking about like all the bad things that have ever happened in history. Um, And I've actually uh, had conversations with some parents, um, both parents of my students and also parents that are like my friends whose kids are going through middle school and high school. And they're like, why is it that my kid has to learn about the Holocaust and slavery and, you know, and on and on. And there's never like sort of like this space for them to just, kids and I think that there's two pieces to that I think one piece is like yeah sometimes you want to just like get your hands dirty and like build a turbine and not have to worry about how it's going to save the world Um, and I think that it is really valuable to create spaces where kids can play and not necessarily have the onus of you know whatever challenging issue is that's out there I also think that there is a particular way that when you are working with young people to create spaces for what I recently learned is called critical hope. Uh, There's an article that I have started reading that um, I highly recommend. It's by Jeffrey Duncan Andrade called Note to Educators, Hope Required When Growing Roses in Concrete. And this article basically goes into these different ways that hope can sometimes be used as a way to put down actually creating positive change. And then also outlines what hope can look like in a way that is challenging but also does lead to real change. And so like finding ways to engage students in understanding what change making look like. Not that it's like, ah, like you'll write a letter to your governor and then suddenly all problems will disappear. But really thinking about who are people who have led movements who have succeeded, who is doing work right now, how can kids engage in that? I think that that can also be a release valve that doesn't force you to just be like, oh, I'm not gonna talk about any of those touchy subjects, but also allows kids to leave not feeling just absolutely steamrolled with all of the hard things that are going on. Yeah, actually, that reminded me of a a unit I modified. We were doing Industrial Revolution. I used to have them write their politicians or companies that are, they had to identify, you know, modern legacies of the Industrial Revolution. And I changed it to, you had to contact an activist, tell them why you were thankful that they're doing the activism that they're doing using, like, concrete details. And the really nice thing, other than having that hope, was that we actually got responses back from people. Because when you email and say, you're horrible, you don't (laughs) tend to get, thank you. Thank you, Billy, for emailing (laughs) me and letting me know that I am getting rich off the back of Chinese labor. (laughs) Yeah, I love that as a modification, because I think a lot of teachers, like, I've seen that in a lot of, like, 
guidebooks where it's like, how to lead kids to action. It's like, write your so-and-so. And it's like, well, sometimes when you write to a, a corporation and you're like, hey, we tested the water and your water is polluted, they're not going to be like, cool, it's so great to hear from you. <laughs> um, so yeah, writing to activists and like really spreading that gratitude will also, like that is literally making the world a better place because it's inspiring those people to keep going. I love that. Are there any innovations that you were considering and then when you actually implemented them, realized that you had taken a wrong turn somewhere? Yeah, all the time. (laughs) I'm just like, where do I start? Body breaks, for example. I did body breaks for a whole year. I felt like I finally got to a good place. Our schedule changed. When our schedule changed, I tried body breaks. It was kind of a nightmare. I did them maybe once a week. I tried doing this thing where kids would like color every day and we were going to like color and read at the same time. And I was like, cool, it's going to be really engaging and also whatever. And like kids were like, I can't color and read at the same time. Like, what are you doing? I was like, duh. Like, you know, um, or like my first year I taught sixth grade and I was like, I'm going to teach all about DNA genetics. And I tried to do it and the kids just looked at me with these eyes and I was like, so like, yes, there are always things where it's like, this is too far. And I might try it a little bit and be like, cool, you got to change. And I actually, what I would say is, I think that my relationship with students is much more benefited from when I tried something, it failed, and I said, yo, that failed, we're going to stop doing that. Then if I had tried something, been stubborn, and been like, we will do this, we will. And have that sort of blow up in in my face and in students' faces. Um, And so I would say that while... Failure is sometimes painful. In the end, it made it much, it, like, it opened up space for students to provide feedback, and it opened up space for students to provide me with other ideas. And usually students' ideas were way better than mine because they are living it. Yeah. So you are an out-trans uh, queer teacher, and I know that and facts about that because you had a KUOW article published in January of 2018. Um, and I was curious about not only your, your journey to where you are today, but what led you to being uh, a subject of that article and, and what that was like for you. Awesome question. So my experience doing that interview was really interesting because I had um, someone from KUW reach out and be like, hey, we want to do this piece about you being an out trans teacher. And I was like, cool, like, here's all these things I'm doing in my classroom. And here's the way that I approach curriculum. And basically, the person was like, you know, that is really awesome. And at this point, on the national scale, like really, just hearing about teachers being out as trans is the story. It is so important for both students and other trans educators and folks working in schools um, to be able to see visibly out trans teachers. And I think we're finally getting to a place where the conversation can push beyond that and be like, all right, also, regardless of whether you're a trans educator, a cis educator, um, uh, straight or queer, like what is it that you are doing to create a classroom where kids can be comfortable and safe, among other things, and also where they like learn stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) when I first went into teaching, I was very early in my identity as a as a man in particular and I actually think that my process of coming to terms with what it means to be a male science teacher compared to a trans science teacher is a process that is still ongoing for me Um, I'm white I'm a man I have a binary identity and while I do have queer and trans experience and those are things that really inform the way that I teach I also am very aware of the way that the power of whiteness and maleness specifically in STEM fields really holds a lot of weight um, both in the ways that students treat me which is actually What led to me coming out as trans in the first place, we were talking about identity in STEM in a unit I was doing in my sixth grade classroom. And I was like, yo, like, 
when I was a science teacher who people perceived as a white woman, I was treated very differently than now when people perceive me as a white man. Like, what's that about? Like, how does that affect the way that um, I move even through just science teaching, let alone if I was in a lab and how people would treat me that in that space? So basically, I found that <clears throat> being able to be fully myself in the classroom was the only way that I was able to really... Um, be open about those experiences and really be myself with kids. And at the end of the day, as teachers, like we are what we teach and our perspective really informs the way that we approach subjects. For teachers that are thinking, oh man, my classroom needs to be more trans inclusive. Uh, obviously there's resources such as your site and other things, but what are like three simple things that a teacher could do in the classroom tomorrow to make it a, a better space? I think the first thing that is fairly, it is like the easiest thing that someone can do that can really have an impact is regardless, like maybe you are like super literate in like trans and intersex and LGBTQ issues. Like, but if you're not, I think anytime you are engaging in these sorts of things to so just have a disclaimer and be like, Hey, the textbook we're using, the language I'm using, the information that we have is problematic. And I acknowledge that I don't have all the answers. Like, let's learn about this together. And as we go, anyone can chime in and be like, hey, I have a question about this. Or, hey, I think that it's actually this way. And just holding that humbly and trying to create that space together without being like, hey, trans kid, teach me everything. Um, <laughs> but just, you know, sort of creating that space to be like, hey, I may be a teacher, but I don't know everything. I also think that bringing in examples, whether you are teaching history or science or mathematics, bringing in examples of LGBTQ people in your discipline um, that kids can learn about and learn that history also is a really clear signal that you are excited about embracing that kind of diversity in your classroom. Um, and then finally, like as you are thinking about the way that you are talking about students or families, like just being really clear and specific in your language and trying to create examples or be really explicit in your language in including like gay and lesbian couples when you're talking about examples in your like math problems or talking about grown-ups instead of parents or talking about families rather than what a family might look like um, and really trying to check our assumptions. Lord knows that I have had to check my assumptions many times about what kids' lives look like and what their own experiences are. And I, a resource for that that I really recommend, I think it's the Montreal AIDS Project, has this incredible list that I could not send to more people. Like, please spread the word. It's called the um, Inclusive Sex Ed Language Checklist. And it is specifically designed for sex ed, but I think they do a really good job of laying out some of the places where we often make assumptions when assumptions are not warranted. I will post that in the show notes because yes. that sounds super important. So good. It's so good. <laughs> so where can people find you? Um, so my website is fishyteaching.com. Um, and you can also email me at fishyteaching at gmail.com. And I'm definitely, I'm super excited to work with folks if they have questions about um, creating inclusive middle school science classrooms and curriculum. I have lots of resources that I'm excited to provide with people. And also if you're interested in bringing me to your school to do a training or to talk with folks about um, specifically um, creating uh, trans-inclusive biology and science spaces, that's something that me and my collaborator, Sam Long, who's an awesome trans educator in Colorado, are currently doing. And one of the reasons why I am taking this year off is to like spread the word and to promote this work. So um, definitely reach out, fishyteaching at gmail.com. Um, we also have a 
listserv of biology, science, and sex ed teachers who are interested in doing gender-inclusive work in their classrooms. And if you're interested in joining that listserv, you can also email me. So there you have it with Lewis Mayday Travis. Why making mistakes creates opportunities, taking time to breathe and acknowledge our bodies helps us learn, and why social justice teaching is important, but so is learning for the sake of learning and cultivating hope. If you like the podcast, you can spread the word by rating and reviewing on iTunes or sending a link to someone you think would be interested. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I've been your host, Aviva Levin.